If you take a look back at the history of political parties in the United States, one thing becomes pretty clear. Their ideologies aren't exactly set in stone. Whether you're talking about racism, war, trade, or the environment, both parties have sometimes been for and other times against. The Republican Party that weakens pollution controls and denies climate change today is the same Republican Party that created the national park system and the EPA. And before Donald Trump accused Democrats of being overrun by Antifa, they were the preferred party of the KKK. Things change. But if there's been one constant for our otherwise protein parties, it's been this. Democrats have been the party of the little guy, and Republicans, the party of big business. Sure, Teddy Roosevelt and Taft were fairly pro-worker, and Eisenhower and Nixon both tried to court union leaders' support. But for the last half century, the GOP party platform has been to destroy labor, not save it. Our guest today wants to change all that. And more importantly, at least some Republicans and labor leaders are open to hearing what he has to say. Warren Cass is the founder and executive director of American Compass, a new think tank that says conservatives can and should be pro-worker. Warren, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for so much for having me, Jim. So before we talk about whether the conservative movement and the labor movement have a future together, let's talk about how we got to where we are now. Only 10% of workers are unionized and just 6% of the private sector employees are. You say that unions have been slowly dying from their own internal dysfunction and the shortcomings of their statutory framework. So what's wrong with organized labor today? Well, I think what's wrong with organized labor as we do it in this country is that we've set it up at at what's called the enterprise level, meaning it works company by company. Uh, And that's something we just sort of take for granted in America, you know, from Sally Field standing up on the table with, with the sign that says union. Um, We have this idea that unionizing means you fight in your particular workplace to have a union, you have to have a vote, and then either you're you're unionized or you're not. Um, It's important to note that's not what organized labor and and unions mean in most of the world. Uh, And and we can talk about what, what those alternatives might look like, but what it means in America when we do it that way is, first of all, firms have an incredible incentive to resist unionizing. If, if your workers unionize, now you are at a huge disadvantage against your competitors. And so you have this incredible amount of adversarialism built in, where even before the union exists, there's, there's likely to be a huge fight. Uh, and then where a union does come in, the, the, the union may get some, some really nice looking short-term gains for, for those workers. But in a lot of cases, it's likely to actually erode the health of those employers over time. And so what we've seen in this country is uh, capital and, and employment moving away from the firms that are unionized, away from the industries that are unionized, away from even the, the regions that have higher levels of unionization. And, and so the result is what you see today, which, as you said, is you know, only about 6% of, of private sector workers have union representation. And, and to put that in context, that's lower than it was in the 1930s before we, we had the National Labor Relations Act. We've you could say at this point, our labor law is is worse than useless. And you say that conservatives, though, should support organized labor. Why? We should support the idea of organized labor. And, and I think this is a, a critical thing to realize is that labor as it is working in this country right now has become a partisan 
political fight more than anything. The unions, their primary role is political, not economic. They fund one of the two parties and, and therefore the other party is, is against them. Um, but, but the concept of organized labor, the idea that we should want workers to have organizations that represent them, that we should want uh, our capitalist market system to be one where workers and, and employers have relatively equal levels of power, um, that, that's something that conservatives should be really excited about. And, and there are kind of three main reasons I emphasize. One is just the, in terms of economic outcomes, you know, if, if we want an economy that spreads prosperity widely, we should want one in which workers and, and employers are, are on a relatively level playing field. And of course, we celebrate that in the context of business cycles. We realize, you know, tight labor markets are a good thing. You, you can read all about that on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, well, one way to get the effects of a tight labor market is to make, to, to make sure that, uh, that, that workers have, have representation and, and some collective power. So I, I think there are some important economic outcomes. Um, the, the second is that it's, it's a substitute for regulation. One of the reasons we need so much regulation of the labor market from Washington is that we, we realize that workers don't have power as individuals to be negotiating their own deals. And so where you actually do have uh, labor able to represent workers effectively, you can actually leave more to the parties to work out themselves and, and do less from Washington. Uh, and then third, unions are just incredibly important institutions of civil society. If we want a strong kind of middle layer of mediating institutions that people are members of that, you know, so support local causes and, and help people who are in need that aren't just individuals in the government, then labor is, is one of the best uh, one of the best mechanisms for that. And so finding a way to have a, a healthy labor movement should, I think, be a conservative priority. Yeah, so you talked about taking the politics out of unions a bit and changing the incentives around unionization fights. What do pro-worker conservative policies look like and how do they achieve those goals? Um, and why do you think that would be better for workers uh, than the system currently today? Well, do, being better than the system we have today is is an awfully low bar. I mean, the, the, the system today is pretty much gone. And, and, I, and I think that's an important place to remember as we start. Also, because I think, you know, one thing I've heard from some folks on the left of center is, you know, oh, this is some scheme to co-opt labor and prevent it from becoming more powerful, um, which, which frankly, I think is kind of silly. I mean, that, that would be a real waste of my time and energy. <laughs> labor in the current system is not going to become more effective and powerful. So the, the question is, how do we do something better than nothing? And fortunately, that, that, that leaves a lot of, of options open. Um, I think for, for conservatives, you know, the, the model that, that we should really want to embrace has, has a, a few elements. One is, um, as I alluded to in, in the negative, getting away from this enterprise level system and saying, you know, the bargaining that we want to have happen, we don't really want to have between unions and, and individual firms that, that really just sort of lead to a race to the bottom in a lot of ways. Um, we, we'd much rather have what's called sectoral bargaining, which means, and, and this is what a lot of European countries do, um, the, the bargaining over contracts actually happens between representatives for all of the workers in an industry um, and all of the firms in an industry. Um, so you can imagine, you know, and this, this might be regional in some cases, but you can imagine um, 
let's have essentially the employers of janitors in New York City and representatives of janitors in New York City sit down to work out a contract. Um, and that is then going to cover all of the janitors in New York City. Um, and, and so whether you do that kind of occupationally or you do that by industry, you know, all of the automakers, all of the elevator mechanics are, are going to be covered this way, um, you, you, you take a lot of the, the, the adversarialism out of it. You make it so that actually both sides sort have a real interest in the health of the industry. Um, and then you say to the, the players in the industry, okay, the way that you're going to compete and win is not who can undercut who on labor the most, because that's just been taken off the table as a way to compete. We're going to focus competition on uh, innovation and productivity and customer service and the, the things that we'd, we'd really like competition to be focused on. So, so I think that's, that's one big piece is, is shifting in that direction. Um, a, a second and somewhat related one is that if you do that, then unions are something that exist in society independent of votes in particular workplaces. So now you as a worker can decide to be a member of a union, not because you have to get all your coworkers to vote for it. You can just join the union if you want. And the flip side is the unions can actually become a locus of benefits. So again, this is something that happens in a lot of other countries. Unions can be the main provider of unemployment benefits. Unions can be the provider of healthcare benefits. Unions can be the main providers of training. And that's something that gets funded in part by member dues, uh, typically in part by the employers, and, and typically in part by the government. But now we have these new institutions that are working on behalf of workers uh, and that workers can be part of whether they're in or out of a particular firm at a moment in time uh, that, that can provide things for workers. So I, I think that would be really healthy. And then finally, if, if you get the, the fight out of the workplace, you can set up a much more cooperative relationship in the workplace. So what, what a lot of, again, other places have is, is something along the lines of, for instance, in Germany, what's called a works council, which is a, a cooperative committee, essentially, with representatives of workers and management that, that deal with more social and governance-related issues in the workplace. And, and the, the competitive bargaining over the economic questions was already settled somewhere else. And one thing you can then do at the local level is if both sides want, they can agree to, to depart from that, but they don't have to. Uh, but, but they can collaboratively work on things that both sides would like to be communicating about and, and improving. I think that's interesting. And and you talked about the idea of a system that could sort of replace some of the regulations that we have in place and that it's also something that unions could step in and take over some of the, you know, social safety net programs that uh, we have. And, and that's led to uh, criticism from the left uh, about your project that it's really just a Trojan horse for gutting you know, the social safety net and getting rid of uh, federal regulations. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, re with respect to the regulations, I think it's really important to emphasize that that I'm not suggesting we get rid of regulations. I'm shifting that I'm suggesting that we shift them from a base to a default. And what I mean by that is that today, and this is one of the reasons I think unions have really struggled. We put so much into employment law. I mean, all of the things that we celebrate that unions have won for the American worker over the years, those are all just ma mandated now by regulations. And so then you ask, well, what's the union going to do? And, and they have to think of new things on top of that, which in a lot of cases have proven to be quite unproductive, you know, seniority rules and, and work rules and, and, and grievance procedures. 
Um, but then also from the employer perspective, it's it's just a, a, a total loss. The, the prospect of, of having a union to negotiate with is just a question of what are you going to give up? And so if, if we shift from a baseline where unions are just talking about things on top of uh, regulation to a default, which means in the absence of an agreement, we use the regulation, but unions and employers can agree to, to depart from it, um, then, then we haven't gotten rid of anything. You, it is still in the power of, of the union to reject any agreement, but we've shifted the basis of, of the conversation from just, okay, what new things can we think of to put on top to what parts of this make sense and, and what parts of this don't make sense or, or would we like to trade off where, you know, there's no shortage of regulation that, is, that, that isn't especially what workers want and that is very costly. Um, and, and then just briefly on the safety net, you know, I think it's really important to emphasize that a lot of what we're talking about here is is exactly how those the, the sort of the the northern European social democracies that that the left loves to celebrate as, as so much better than America. Uh, th- this is exactly the kinds of systems they have, um, and and so the idea that saying hey maybe we should have you know unions as the locus of providing benefits um, that's that's pro union that that strengthens unions in our society and that provides a mechanism to deliver better benefits to workers and typically what you see is workers much prefer to get their benefits from a union than from a government because the union is a lot more accountable to them and uh, and and attuned to to what they are interested in uh, and and how to serve their needs we've been talking broadly about unions and organized labor so far but I just want to be clear do you also include public sector unions when we're talking about this? Or do you think that those should be treated differently from the private sector uh, workers? No, I, I think public sector unions should be treated differently. Um, I, I think there are, there are some parallels. I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about here that unions can provide, it would make great sense in, in the public sector as well. It, it makes sense for, for public sector workers to have representation uh, to to have a voice in the workplace, to to potentially have a provider of benefits. Um, what what I don't think makes sense, and and what for, for as far as I think, as far as I know, no one thinks makes sense. If if you take the partisan lens off for a minute, um, is is that you should have collective bargaining between uh, public sector unions and the government the way that you do between private sector unions and employers. And this is, you know, FDR said the same thing. This isn't some <laughs> right-wing pro-business talking point. This is common sense that that the, the whole premise we've been talking about in the economic context for labor is that we want to equalize the, the playing field and, and the relationship between management and workers. Um, in the public sector, that's that's not how this works. In the public sector, the the terms and and demands being set by the employer are political questions. They are they are being set through public policy. They are not be and and in in a democratic republic like ours, ultimately by the people. Um, they are not being set by a narrow set of of shareholders and managers. And so, saying that we're going to have uh, public sector unions negotiating essentially against the public. Um, I don't think makes a lot of sense. I think the right way to resolve those sorts of questions is through the political process that we have. Uh, and I think it particularly makes no sense to say that a public sector union can 
both be negotiating against publicly chosen representatives and be politically campaigning for selecting those representatives. I think plenty of uh, teachers uh, would would disagree with some of what you said, but... Well, which part of it? I, I think they disagree that the system has led to sort of this almost rent-seeking behavior by the, the unions, right? Uh, I think they would argue that they're currently underpaid and that the unions are the only thing that are keeping them uh, getting close to you know, getting paid what they deserve. No, but if, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's a great example to interrogate a little bit because not to be flipped, but of course, everyone always thinks they're being underpaid. I mean, the, the, the desire to be paid more is obviously a universal one. To actually justify organized labor and, and the system of bargaining we have, you have to make some claim about what's not working and why you need the teachers to have representation and, and collective bargaining power. In, in the private sector, we have a very good explanation for that. that that goes all the way back to Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, who talked about how by default labor is at a disadvantage against capital um, and, and to, to get good deals, um, they need to have some sort of collective power. Um, to say that, that teachers are not being paid enough, the question is, well, who isn't paying them enough? And, and the answer would be government, meaning policymakers, meaning politically elected or, you know, political democratically elected representatives. And so to the extent that teachers don't feel they're being paid enough, their complaint ultimately is to all of us. And, and the remedy that they have is to make a political case that, that we should be spending more on education. And I think teachers' organizations making that case, by all means, that, of, of course, that's their interest and, and they can make that case. But their complaint that they're being, not being paid enough is that they just aren't happy with the political choices we've made as a society, which is very different from workers in some industry who, uh, who, who don't have representation or power against a narrow set of shareholders or, or managers who are, are setting the wages in that industry. So we've talked about how unions have been in a long decline, um, but plenty of labor economists and historians would blame Republicans for that. Republicans have been pushing for uh, right-to-work laws and passed them in a bunch of states, and uh, a study of Harvard has found that union membership tends to drop by 5 to 10% in the states that pass those laws. And so uh, the, the question I have is, you know, as you're trying to make this pitch from the right um, uh, to workers, why should they trust the GOP and conservatives on, on these issues? Well, the, there, there's certainly no question that, that the Republican Party has been opposed to labor unions as they operate in this country for a long time. I, I think there's a little bit of a, a chicken and the egg problem that labor unions in this country have been opposed to Republicans for, for a long time. And, you know, as, as you alluded to right, right at the outset, um, it's always been the case that, or, you know, in, in modern times, that, that the Republican Party has, has been more solicitous of the interests of business. Um, but the kind of, of hyperpolarization that we have today was not the standard. I mean, Samuel Gompers, the, the famous early 20th century organizer and founder of the AFL, um, had, had a strong principle of what he called political nonpartisanship, that, that unions should not be um, partisan in the way of essentially being affiliated with one of the parties. And, and that carried all the way up 
um, through uh, through George Meany, who was the longtime leader of the AFL-CIO. Um, you know, I, you mentioned Eisenhower went and campaigned to the AFL. Nixon feted labor leaders. Um, and and by the way, in '72, in, in Nixon against um, uh, McGovern, AFL-CIO didn't even endorse. Um, so you know, it's always been true that that unions have leaned more uh, on on the side of of the party that was focused more as they saw it on the concerns of workers. Um, but but there used to be much more heterogeneity and. Uh, in, as with so much in American politics, the, the polarization escalated over time and, and I think really reached a breaking point with, with the Gingrich GOP in the 90s, where, where you actually, you know, as I said, there, there's sort of a chicken the egg cycle with, with plenty of blame to go around. But what you ultimately had happened was unions turn against a bunch of pro-labor Republicans um, because they decided we, we have nothing to gain from a Gingrich GOP, so we would prefer to just see it thrown out, uh, at which point those Republicans said, well, <laughs> we're certainly not going to remain pro-union while they are actively spending on our opponents. So that trend in the way that unions have become, also as they've declined as economically relevant agents, they've really just become fundraisers for the Democratic Party. Um, obviously, the response of the Republican Party is to hope that they become weaker. And and so we, we have to break that cycle. And part of that is, is a responsibility of Republicans to say, wait a minute, when we talk about labor, we're not just talking about these unions that are spending against us. We're talking about a, a concept that is important and could work in a lot of different ways. Um, and then ultimately, it's also up to, to Democrats to some extent to, to be willing to say, uh, yes, there are, are a lot of campaign donations to be had, at least in the short run, in just trying to keep this entrenched system alive. Um, but we're, we're not ultimately serving the long-run interests of anybody this way. And, and I think encouragingly, this is something you're starting to see from not current labor leaders, but former leaders and labor leaders and organizers and academics on the left um, the folks at, at Harvard Law School's Clean Slate Project have done some interesting work on this, really being willing to say at this point, look, this, this system is not coming back. This is not the right system. And the democratic strategy of just, well, what laws can we pass that would get more workers into these unions um, is not, it's not actually good for the economy or the nation or, or ultimately for these workers. Um, and, and so that's why this strikes me as a place where, for for all the, the, the partisanship and, and gridlock in Washington, there's really potentially a chance to go another direction. Because on this issue, um, the, the stalemate is driven by two sides that are actually talking about something else. Uh, and, and when the two sides actually talk about this, you, you actually see a lot of nodding heads. Uh, and, and so the, the work we're trying to do is, is to, to get everyone to talk about this and, and, and see where it goes. And I think people are talking about it, but uh, I gotta ask. I mean, you said you want to break this cycle uh, between Republicans and and labor being antagonistic to each other, but it seems like you have a lot of work to do. I know um, you've said that you've gotten a warm welcome um, from a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill, but it's still pretty clear that libertarian economics uh, is the party's orthodoxy still. You know, there's only a handful of pro-union uh, Republicans out there, uh, mostly in swing districts, and they're endangered species. So, I guess what what I want to know is what sort of uh, objective signs should we be looking out for 
to be able to say that these ideas that you're putting forth are catching purchase with uh, the Republican Party? Well, it's exactly the right question, and and I think you we can talk about it at two levels. There's there's the broad point about the the, the libertarian orthodoxy, and and then there's the the specific point of, of about labor as, as sort of a case study in that. Uh, you know, I, I think on the broader point, you're exactly right about the orthodoxy that has existed for a long time. I think there there's a fascinating battle now underway, um, and and likely to uh, to to deepen very quickly, um, per- particularly if, uh, if 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 President Trump loses in November, um, but but even if he wins, you know, e- either way, that's that's his last election, and the question of what comes after Trump um, is one on on which the Republican Party and, and the right of center generally are are very deeply divided. You have what I would sort of call a a pre-Trump faction that that sees Trump as an aberration and has kept its head down and decided this too shall pass. And 2024 can sound like what 2016 would have sounded like if, if Trump had never come down the great golden elevator or escalator. Um, and, and then there's a faction that, that I would say is very interesting, a, a, po- a post-Trump direction for, for the Republican Party, which, which isn't a, a carrying on of Trumpism. I, I don't know that Trumpism is an ism. I think it's just sort of Trump. Um, but that, that has learned some very important lessons um, from from what Trump has shown, both about some of the very real problems in the country that that need redress, and about what the right of center coalition actually looks like, uh, and and is really committed to the idea of of developing a a right of center economic approach that uh, that I would say is is conservative rather than libertarian. I mean, what we call conservative in this country on on economic questions really is just libertarian. Uh, and in a lot of ways, not conservative as, at all. Whereas some of the things we've been talking about here, um, you know, in, in terms of of workers having representation and and wanting to have more um, stability and equity in the private sector and and strong institutions, um, even at the expense of shareholders, uh, those those are things that conservatives are are very interested in. And so, you know, at at that macro level, I think the thing to watch for is that fight and and what you see with with some really uh, innovative folks in, in the Republican Party, like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley. I think Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton have both um, done a lot of, of constructive work in this direction. Um, and, and particularly as you see kind of the, the battle for 2024 start, um, you'll see these two sides. And, and I, I believe the, the post-Trump forward-looking pro-worker one is going to win and, and certainly should win. Um, but, but I agree that that's an open question. Uh, and, and then on labor in particular, you know, that'll be uh, a great example to watch. I think what, what we saw as we spoke with folks on, on Capitol Hill about the topic uh, is, is that there, there was no one who disagreed with us and said, no, this is stupid and wrong. Um, what there was was a lot of people who said, that's really interesting. I've never actually thought about that. Um, and I, you know, my, my instinct is not to object, but my instinct is to say, I, uh, this is something I would need to learn more about. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not as exciting as great. Everyone wants to sit down and write the legislation tomorrow. Um, but, but ultimately it's positive. Ultimately, I think it, it says that, you know, as I, I described and why we think this is an opportunity, um, it, it's not an area where people have entrenched, unmovable, opposing positions. You know, you're talking about this as you know, sort of uh, where the the GOP should go 
after uh, Trump. And I'm wondering, what does victory look like for you? Like, is it all or nothing, or is the goal just to get a, a sizable caucus within the party? Well, my goal is is to see a change in the way we talk about economic issues and public policy. Um, American Compass's mission, which which we of course spent spent much too long choosing every word of, is is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Um, I think that is something that neither the left nor right of center does well right now uh, in terms of its kind of standard orthodoxy, uh, and that's something that there are folks within the left and right of center uh, that care about it deeply. And, you know, we have, we have folks far to the left of center who, who write for us, and, and we like bringing their thoughts um, to, to the forefront as well. Uh, and, and so ultimately, I think it's a shift that needs to occur across the political spectrum. Um, and, and then you will consi- continue to have partisan political fights as you always have, but, but I hope with, with a different set of assumptions and a, about how the world works and, and a different outlook about the goal. And then what that means for the, the sort of specific configuration of the parties, uh, my hypothesis at this point, given, given the alignment of, of interests and coalitions, uh, is that it is likely to be the right of center that, that focuses most squarely on some of these questions and, um, and, and building an economy that, that really supports workers and their families, not with a huge set of, of government programs and, 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 and systems of redistribution, but with changes to our institutions and, and structures so that the economy actually works for everybody. Um, that's, that's a fundamentally conservative goal and one that I see, at least in my con- conversations, conservatives um, grabbing onto a lot faster than progressives do. Um, but but we are excited to work with anyone and, and and everyone who's interested in moving in this direction. And and there are folks on both sides of the aisle who fall in that camp. And and ultimately, I think that's where where progress comes from, not from building up one side at the expense of other, but from actually finding some new things that that folks agree on. Uh, and and then my hope would would be that 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 comes with a real strengthening of conservatism and and a real frankly, persuasive element of, of helping more people, both in, in the political world and just in the country, understand that, um, that, that that's what conservatism is, not some of the, the sort of silly market fundamentalist things that, that you'll hear from libertarians, uh, and, and that that's a positive direction for the, for the country to head. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess my, my question is, is just that you've focused uh, all of your attention on addressing the right, addressing conservatives and the GOP. And if their goal is to change uh, the conversation around economic issues broadly, why have that right of center focus entirely and not try to, I don't know, like there are nonpartisan think tanks out there that, you know, say they're talking to both sides. Well, I just said I'm talking to both sides because that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, if you look at this labor project as an example, you know, the 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 first big interview that that we did talking about it was with New York Magazine. Um, the second one was was with the Public Discourse, which is which is a really thoughtful conservative outlet. Um, the the third was within these times, which which is an almost sort of. Uh, uh, I don't want to call them radical in a negative sense, but in a non-judgmental sense, I would describe them as fairly radical. Um, I think I think they would describe themselves as all radical. Right. Well, all right. Well, then, terrific. So. We are in agreement that that we yeah. would describe them as radical. 
Um, and, and so, you know, and, and at, and at the same time, we, you know, did a, a segment announcing it on a Fox news program, and then also wrote a, an essay for the wall street journal. So, um, it's, it's something that I think encouragingly, there's a lot of interest in across the political spectrum. Um, and, and something that, uh, that, that we try to speak with everyone about. All right. Well, I think that's a good uh, note to end it on. Uh, Oren, thanks so much for joining us. No, it was my pleasure. It was a fun conversation. Even if Republicans can win over union voters, some would question the political wisdom of trying to do so. After all, as we've mentioned, union membership has steadily declined for decades. As of 2019, only 14.6 million Americans were in unions. To put that into perspective, more Americans own their own small businesses. In fact, the number is double. There are 30 million small business owners, at least there was before COVID-19 hit. And it's unlikely that Democrats will let the GOP take blue-collar workers away from them without a fight. Union leaders say a Democratic sweep this November would mean new laws and policies that will usher in a golden age for the labor movement. If that happens, conservatives like Cass will have their work cut out for them as they try to win over the working class. But if the parties do end up competing over who has the best labor policies, the winner in the end should be obvious, workers. I'm Jim Saxa for CQ Future.